Blog Talk Radio. Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show. We have a great show for you tonight. To all the listeners around the world, we say welcome. Hello, Eastern family and friends around the world. This is Chuck Albright. It's great having you with us. I'm coming to you live from the beautiful villages in central Florida where the weather's Abomini, 74 degrees right now. Welcome and thank you for listening and calling the show. We, you have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we became Eastern Airlines International Radio Show. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with the radio listeners from around the world during the broadcast. If you haven't called a show before, all you need to do is call 213 213- 816-1611, and just say hello and talk to us. You'll be live on the air. We can identify many countries around the world who listen in with their blog talk radio application. Isn't it great that we keep the Eastern legacy going out to not only the Eastern families, but to listeners from many different countries around the world? That's, why we try to, that's what we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on their homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in on the side of our provider, Blog Talk Radio, at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, let me repeat that number so you can write it down for the Monday night visits. 213-816-1611, 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. By the way, why don't you tell your friends about us? Don't forget, you can listen to any of our 410 Monday night broadcasts and 75-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Scrolling down through the archives of the broadcast, each episode is briefly described 
And, you know, we're getting close to 500 episodes. Wow, you know, that's going to be a milestone. Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with our host, we ask you to please mute your phone because our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises, kind of like ice cubes in the glasses stuff. Three major cities served by Eastern were New York, Atlanta, and Miami. When we talk about New York service, we include all three airports, LaGuardia, Newark, and Kennedy, which Eastern served throughout the history of the airports and Eastern Airlines. Oh, I see we're number one for takeoff. So, Captain, let's get flight 410 in the air, and that will be our to our first destination. Tower Blur is 650 volt, Curtis Airport opened in 1929 as a private airfield off Flushing Bay. It became a commercial airport called North Beach in 1935, and a decade later was changed to what we know today, which is the which what we know today when the uh, New York Mayor LaGuardia wanted the city to have its own airport and not have to rely on Newark. Glen Curtis Airport was built in 1929 on the site of the Steinway family's Gala Amusement Park in the North Beach section 
of Queens. The shoreline area was owned by New York Air Terminals, and beginning in 1925, flying began here. Two years later, Glenn H. Curtis, the famed aviation pioneer from Long Island, who founded the country's aircraft industry, bought the land as a distribution center for his Curtis Robin light aircraft. Then in 1929, this area plus the site of the amusement park, totaling 105 acres, was sold to Curtis Wright Airports Corporation and named Glenn H. Curtis Airport. At the time, it had just three hangars and three gravel runways, the longest of which was 2,300 feet. Today's runways are usually 6,000 feet or longer. And the waterfront location was good for both land and seaplanes, according to Paul Freeman. In 1935, the city bought the site for use as a light aircraft field facility to create air exports and a small flight school. They changed the name to North Beach Municipal Airport, and not long after, the push to turn the site into a commercial airport began when Mayor LaGuardia flew into Newark Airport when his ticket said New York. Though Newark was the only commercial airport serving the area at the time, the mayor made the pilot fly him into Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn, the city's first municipal airport. He then gave an impromptu press conference calling on New Yorkers to support a new airport. After a failed attempt at turning Floyd Bennett into a commercial airport, Newark proved to be more accessible accessible to Manhattan. The city decided to take advantage of the newly opened Queens Midtown Tunnel and place their sights on North Beach Airport. After a $23 million redevelopment that turned the small facility into a 550-acre modern destination, the New York Municipal Airport LaGuardia Field was dedicated on October 15, 1939. The fancy new airport opened with four runways, ranging from 4,500 to 6,000 feet in length, and with commitments from the five largest airlines, Pan American Airways, American United Eastern Airlines, and Transcontinental and Western. A 1998 Newsday article recounted the glamour of the airport as well as its subsequent financial trouble. Families flocked to the airport on weekends just to watch the gleaming silver airliners take off and vanish into the blue or swoop majestically down onto the field. A dime got you through the turnstiles to a crowded observation deck. The turnstile dimes plus parking fees soon added up to $285,000, the New York Times reported two years later. With other yearly revenues of $650,000, the LaGuardia White Elephant, as its opponents dubbed it earlier, soon was operating in the black. The name was officially changed to LaGuardia Airport in 1947 after the Port Authority took control of the site. By 1951, Air Transatlantic flights had moved to Idlewild Airport, now JFK, 
or John F. Kennedy Airport. And in the 80s, the Port Authority and FAA had to institute regulations on nonstop flights to cities more than 1,500 miles away, as well as the general number of flights going in and out of the airport. Now, my discussion is to those that are listening and also our host. I know we have two other hosts here. We thought we would have three of them, George Jend. Uh, is not with us tonight, but uh, why the 1,500-mile range, uh, Mike, or uh, Jim Holder? Either one of you guys, if I open your microphone, you probably could say something. All right, now, <laughs> you've got time to talk now. So tell me what uh, this 1,500 miles, do you know why it uh, restricted the uh, distance from that airport? Well, well, I'm not sure, Taylor, too. Mike, would you mind taking this one? Well, I was just <laughs> going to pass it over to you, so I don't know. Maybe that's uh, uh, on a, a long-range fuel tank. Maybe that's as far as they could go. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it was something to do with Kennedy or something, or uh, what was the first name? Idlewild. I yeah. don't know. Maybe I they know, wanted yeah. to let Idlewild have more of the long flights, I guess. I don't know. I kind of like that, should have been Jim a multiple Holder. choice. I kind of like uh, both of that. Now, both of you guys have flown into LaGuardia Field. What's your feeling about uh, takeoff and landings there and operating operations in general at LaGuardia? Any thoughts? Well, i tell you, uh, I'd like to tell you about my first trip in there on the Electra. I was the Electra, uh, they call us Pilot Flight Engineers, PSA. I don't know if that was all that FAA business with the flight engineer problems. But I was sitting up there looking all around, going in LaGuardia at night, and we did a circling approach, and I was sitting there. I, you know, I was just a young kid, and we went out across the airport, and then we made a turn back around to the left to come back in and land on one free. And being the alert young fellow that I was, all of a sudden, I couldn't see the airport anymore back there. And I was looking. The captain was just flying the airplane and making that left turn. And I'm sitting there thinking, is everything black out here? And I look back at the airport. There's no airport back there. And he yeah. kept the left turn coming, you know. And all of a sudden, there was the airport again. And I said, what in the world happened? What did we do? And he said, well, there's a big prison out there. And when we circle approach and we get down about 400 feet, we're below yeah. the, the prison. I've forgotten the name of it. And I thought to myself, this is the most exciting circle approach I've ever seen. Then <laughs> we're out there in the dark, but we're making a turn over this prison. And came Rikers on Island. Of course, yeah. Rikers Island, that's what it was. Rikers, yeah. <laughs> and I thought to myself, man, alive, it's time for jive. I've done seen something here. You know? <laughs> and that was my first landing at uh, LaGuardia of many, many, many. Yeah, Mike, do you have some good experiences there? Well, I, I yeah, I, I I was in there in the uh, flying the seven two and the seven three, and more so in the uh, the old HS one twenty five, the Hawker, and uh, I, it was no, not really much of a problem going in and out of there except for the traffic, and uh, I think the uh, at nighttime in the wind doing that the expressway visual that they used to call it, that could get mm-hmm. very interesting landing on the runway three one. Uh, to the north mm-hmm. there, and uh, but uh, I, I never really uh, we didn't uh, do that much flying in and out of LaGuardia. It was mostly Newark, but mm-hmm. 
But uh, I never had a problem. Everything seemed to work oh, yeah. out fine for me. Well, it worked well, okay for me, too. But I'll... Go ahead, Jim. I was going to say that I love during the springtime and summer to take off on one way, one free. This is in a 727. And we go down there and we lift off and make that hard right turn and we go right over Shea Stadium. Yeah. And look down on the ball yeah. players yeah. and I say, Yeah, Lord Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> we must sound like the wrath of God going across Shea Stadium at about four hundred feet. But they didn't seem to change it. I think Shea Stadium's not there anymore. I don't know. I haven't been there in yeah. a long time. But I love well, to you, make that take off and go right over Shea Stadium. Roar, boy. Well you know like Jim, I'm really putting on an air show. I kind of enjoyed flying the 1011 into uh, LaGuardia and making the uh, uh, Shea Stadium uh, approach. You know, you come around yeah. Shea mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. line that, seven, that 1011 up, and there's the runway, uh, and and uh, you go over the dike and uh, touch mm-hmm. that airplane down, and that's a big airplane to be operating in. I always consider sure LaGuardia yeah. as a smaller airport. You know, it's real mm-hmm. tight in. And uh, coming up the Hudson River, uh, you make the right turn and come over Central Park, and you yeah. line up mm. for one what uh, one tree, and uh, it, it's it's a fun airport to operate out of as a pilot, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ten eleven. That's like uh, you kind of look at that. It is, it's like a carrier landing. You look like you're landing on a postage stamp. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well. Well, you know, that's well, 11. You came in, you was so high up in the air, Neil, as you know, and you land on a short runway, and you say, my God, we're never going to stop. And then the <laughs> yeah. nose goes down, and all of a sudden, yeah. you got another 2,000 feet, it looks like. But that was a great airplane. It could go anywhere. Well, you know, that airplane, especially on that uh, LaGuardia approach around Shea Stadium, the uh, DL, I forgot, DLCs, the left, uh, direct lift control devices uh, on the uh, root of the wing uh, to the fuselage uh, where they were located in the flap section, of course. Uh, those things would work to keep your attitude right. And you pull the power back and those little old light lift devices would spoil the wind and kind of let you go Dollar in and you didn't have to DLC. yeah yeah dlc that's mm-hmm. what i'm trying to say DLC, lift yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you still yeah. keep the same you keep the same deck angle all the way down right right Absolutely. yeah wonderful airplane and then i came along and flew the a300 in there and and uh we had to have special construction at the airport eastern caused some uh, extra reinforcements of of those uh, uh, pilings that the runway is built out over uh, that uh, would support the weight of the uh, A300. And uh, we had uh, also lead-in lights or lead-in to the uh, departure on that runway, 1-3. And when we came around, we had to locate those lights and make a turn and look for the next light and make a turn and look for the next one. Finally, make that last turn. You're lined up down the runway, and uh, that was kind of interesting to operate that way. I'm going to turn it over to Laguardia Tower at this time. Laguardia Tower, you're on the air. Eastern four ten. You're cleared to Newark International Airport, and you're cleared for takeoff. Who's the captain on this one? I think it's Mike Scott. You're up, Mike. 
<laughs> oh, okay. So you got uh, all right. Roger, Newark, uh, Eastern Four Ten. We're cleared to land. Well, let's have him landing. <laughs> okay, clear to take off. We we had George in there, but I guess he's disappeared. <laughs> well, here you are landing, and you can be landing at the Newark Airport. You can tell us all about. Gotta redact and take off. <laughs> Now that was the landing, correct? <laughs> that was the landing. That was a pretty good landing, Mike. Okay. Now, Mike, okay. you just landed. The- there we go. Touchdown in the nose wheel. Touchdown in the nose wheel and gently lower the mains. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. As you probably traveled in, a, as you probably traveled in and out of Newark Airport. Uh, uh, but you know, uh, did you know anything about its history? We'll share some of these key things that happened over the years. The Newark Liberty International Airport first opened on October 1st, 1928, under the name of Newark Metropolitan Airport. It was built on 68 acres of marshland, and its very first terminal, an Art Deco administration building, was built in 1934. For 11 years, Newark was the only airport to serve New York City and was considered the uh, busiest commercial airport in the world, that is, until LaGuardia opened in Queens in 1939. Once World War II began, Newark Airport was taken over by the Army for logistics operations and was closed to commercial flights, which helped LaGuardia grow in popularity. When Newark reopened in 1946, it wasn't long after the port off the, the Port Authority in New York Port of New Jersey took control of it, as usual. Uh, the Port Authority immediately began making improvements to Newark by adding an instrument runway, a second terminal building, control tower, and an air cargo center. By the 1970s, roadways, taxiways, and a third, third terminal was built. In addition, construction on a fourth terminal started at the airport's name was changed to Newark International Airport. Expansion continued throughout the 1980s and 1990s, and the airport was fitted with a monorail system, which connected Newark Airport parking, its terminals, and rent-a-car facilities. Also, International Arrivals Facility was built and a two-building maintenance complex. On September 11th, as we all know, 2001, United Airlines Flight 93 left Newark Airport and was headed for San Francisco when the hijackers took control of the plane. Their intended target was believed to be Washington, D.C., and the airplane's 40 passengers had decided to try and regain control of the airplane. It crashed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, killing all 40 passengers and the four hijackers. In 2002, Newark International Airport became Newark Liberty International Airport, both to honor Flight 93 and to pay tribute to the Statue of Liberty, which sits seven miles east of the airport. Today, Newark Airport is the third largest hub for the United Airlines, handles more than 30 million passengers every year. Together with LaGuardia Airport, John F. Kennedy Airport, and Newark helps create the largest airport system in the U.S., the largest system in the world when it becomes the total flight operations. If you are flying in and out of Newark, 
Don't ever forget that Eastern Airlines was one of the first airlines to serve the New York area out of this airport. Yep. How about Newark? Okay. Newark Airport. Any discussion about Newark? Hey, George Jen. How are you, George? You must well, have I a thought switch it was George. I thought, no, I thought George was with us, but maybe not. At He's any still rate, fishing. Yeah. I, any, got, any, I got tons of stories about Newark, but uh, well, we, tell I was us a based there with, them, the, anyhow. Go ahead, with uh, three different airplanes. I was based there with three different 727s. <laughs> Newark wow. was always interesting. Uh, they, uh, they, they, the only thing that really used to annoy me was when we were uh, coming from the West Coast into Newark. Uh, you, you would normally make your descent. 120, 130 miles out, depending on the wind. And these guys used to start us out there. You'd be 250, 275 miles out. They'd start your descent down 18,000 feet. And all that fuel you saved going all the way across the United States, you just push out the tailpipe when you started flying that basically a 23 DME arc all the way around the airport, following everybody else in, descending 1,000 feet at a time and changing your heading by 10 degrees. And just following everybody in. It was a wagon train. But uh, that was the only thing that really annoyed me about it. Other than flying in and out of Newark, it was, uh, the traffic was uh, got to be very, very heavy uh, at one time after Continental was kind of dominating that whole airport. And uh, we'd be sitting in line, and uh, we we sometimes we'd tack just down to one engine. We'd, we'd uh, sit in there. There'd be so many tails sticking up. Uh, would be number twenty, twenty-three, or or thirty yeah. in the oh, line yeah. to take off, and you know our wow. passengers, being as they were corporate type people, uh, they'd always want to know uh, when, when when are we going to go? When are we going to go? <laughs> and so we'd always get on the on the horn and say, "Okay, guys, what's uh, what's our sequence?" Because these guys, we were always over at Butler Aviation, which is on the north west side of the field, and we'd have to go all the way down if we were departing on runway. Uh, on four uh, four right, it's on four left. I mean, so that, that was, and they'd come out of the terminal, they'd pull in in front of us, and we didn't. Sometimes <laughs> they, they'd be the guys that came in in front of us would be leaving after us. So yeah. they had the kind of a an extra large extended penalty box down in the end in the cargo area where everybody used to pass and sequence each other. <laughs> I so that was always interesting, but going in and out of there, it was it was not too much of a problem. Uh, all of the uh, we had all of the departures, the SIDS and yeah. the stars all memorized because we went in and out of there so many times. So it was well, uh, kind of a pleasure. And the only thing I really could say that uh, anybody that I was flying that was with that was new to to listen up on what's going on because yeah. those guys those controllers were uh, they were not very forgiving if you missed the call on the radio so yeah. i said you li- listen very carefully to what's going on in front of yeah. us yeah <laughs> and that control tower is kind of unusual looking that was a real space age control tower it was what yeah. was that uh, mike what was that jim holder you too uh, we used to take off the 727 on that short runway that was a perpendicular to 4 i believe and it went right, out over yeah. the shipyard. Uh, 28 or something like that. Runway 28 yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, 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 they used to get us every once in a while. Uh, you'd be on the approach for 2 2 left, and uh, uh, and then you would you would be 
uh, yeah, and and you would break off to uh, if you, you they'd have your S turning. You got so close, they would start your S turning out there. And being yeah. as we were going to Butler Aviation, it was off the end of runway two eight. So they give us that uh, circle of land deal where you bust off yeah. and go over the <laughs> Gothels Bridge and come back around about a about a thirty five forty degree bank one way and then about a thirty five forty degree bank the other way to line up. Yeah. And it yeah. always got the the passengers' attention. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we got to move on to the next airport. Okay. Uh, Newark Tower. Oh, it's all I'm not going to get Newark. to talk about Newark. All right. Okay. No, no, no. Before, well, I'll, hey, uh, Newark uh, Tower, just disregard. Jim's got a story about the, the airport. <laughs> well, I'll make it short. I was short. Uh, kicking and screaming from Chicago to New York on May 15, 1965. And we ended up getting an apartment, a uh, home uh, up in Hackensack, right outside of Hackensack, Little Perry, New Jersey. Well, it was a long way over LaGuardia and a lot longer over to Kennedy, so I flew out of Newark every chance I got. And it seemed like I'd find this one trip. It seemed like I'd get in about 9 o'clock at night, and I would – this was on the Electra. I was still flying Electra second hour, so I started the one-year sentence up there before I got back down south. But <laughs> we'd get on that expressway, and we'd go north. And they had this great big – I don't know what you'd call it. It was on fire the whole time we were over there on the west side of the interstate, and smoke would drift over, and my car was air conditioning broke. You know, in the second year of pay, you don't get to fix your car. And I'd smell that stinking thing going all the way up to Little Ferry, listening to WW7 on radio, and the Sonny and Shura singing, You Got Me, Babe. And every time I hear that song, You Got Me, Babe, I smell them damn tires burning over there. <laughs> but, I didn't, but, I, but it was a lot better to go down there and, and do that rather than going to Kennedy, which I did have to do that sometimes, or LaGuardia. And that's my story. All right, Newark Towers, back to you. Eastern 410, you are now cleared to the John F. Kennedy International Airport, and you're cleared for takeoff. And that's supposed to be Mike Scott flying the airplane. Okay, Roger. Newark Eastern 410 is clear for Kennedy, and we're on the roll. <laughs> we think. It's slow to spool. Hey. Kennedy Tower, Eastern 410, you are cleared to land. Roger, Kennedy, Eastern 410 is clear to land. Kennedy International Airport was originally known as Idlewild Airport after the Idlewild Golf Course that it, it displaced. The airport was envisioned as a reliever for LaGuardia Airport, which had insufficient capacity in the late 1930s. Construction began in 1943 by the local firms such as the Enwood Group, headed by late Charles Foley Sr., 
a decorated former uh, FDNA fireman, about $60 million was initially spent. But only 1,000 acres of land on the side of the Ottawa Golf Course was earmarked for the use. The project was renamed Major General Alexander E. Anderson Airport in 1943 after a Queens resident who had been the commander in a federalized National Guard unit in the southern United States who had died late in 1942. In March 1948, the New York City Council again changed the name to New York International Airport, Anderson. But the airport was commonly known as Iowa until 1963. The Port Authority leased the airport property from the city of New York in 1947 and maintained the lease as late as 2000. The first commercial flight at the airport was on July 1, 1948. Opening ceremonies were attended by President Harry Truman. The Port Authority Council foreign airline permits to use LaGuardia, effectively forcing them to move to the new airport during the next couple of years. Airport opened with six runways and the seventh under construction. Runway 1L and 7L were held in reserve, never came into use as runways. Runways 31R, originally 8,000 feet, is still in use today. Runway 31L is in use. Runway 1R closed in 1950, and Runway 7R closed around 1966. Runway 4, originally 8,000 feet, was now Runway 4L. Opened June 1949, and the Runway 4R was added 10 years later. A smaller runway, which was 1432, was constructed after Runway 7R closed, and remained in operation through 1990. The smaller runway was used for general aviation and stole air currents, and the field takeoff and landings for shorter commuter flights. Aerojet Jetliner landed in Ottawa on 19, uh, April 18, 1950. Maybe in July around 1951, the Sud Aviation Carvel uh, prototype was the next jetliner to land at Ottawa. On May 2, 1957, later in 1957, the USSR sought approval for two Tupelo 2104 flights carrying Soviet diplomats to Idlewild. The Port Authority did not allow them, saying noise tests had been done first. The Carvelli was then tested at Paris. Uh, any discussion about Kennedy? Anybody? I would say the Canarsie approach I always yes, associate with Kennedy. The Canarsie approach. That was a fun approach. We all do. Would you say, Mike and Jim? <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah, it was. Can, no, can you, it can you describe to our listeners how that approach, either one of you, how that approach was made? Well, it was basically well, a VOR approach, and then once mm-hmm. you got past the Canarsie VOR, you had a, a course going out. I don't remember what it was right now, but then you, once you picked up those strobe lead-in lights, they had some mm-hmm. step-downs in the altitudes in the speeds later on. And uh, the to land on the right side was uh, 
was uh, a, a little, if you followed the lights, it would be a little bit tighter turn, but the left side was a lot easier, even though the runway was shorter. Yeah. It was an easier approach, I think. So I believe that. uh, that's I believe basically that. the, we didn't go in there very often because they didn't have any, uh, any FBOs yeah. there to take care of private airplanes. They just had the Port Authority. Jim, you, you have any Jim, stories about, yeah. Jim Holder, you have a story well, about uh, yeah. Kennedy? Well, the biggest stories I have about Kennedy is that you could spend a lifetime going from the gate to the runway and runway <laughs> back to the gate. It was really crowded. And if the, if you went around, I forgot the gate number, but if you went around into the eastern terminal and you parked all the way around on the northeast side and it was real tight to get in there, and you really had to watch it because there was a fence over there. And there gate was this 10. one. Yeah, what was, was it? Gate, gate 10. <laughs> gate 10. They really had to watch it. And yeah. this and Paul Quinn, who's no longer around, and neither is the captain, but Paul told me he was flying with this guy, and the captain was concentrating on getting around, and Paul was in the right seat. He kept telling the captain, look out. Watch that. Look out. Look out. And about that time, boom, they hit it. And they pulled the gate, and the captain said, oh, God, not again. <laughs> again. <laughs> he done it twice. <laughs> you got to hear Paul Quinn tell that story. He said, oh, oh Lord. God. He put his hands over his eyes and said, not again. Not again. He hit that, <laughs> he hit that fence. And that was in the 727. Well, That's I was an awful lot, a lot of Kennedy. 727 wingtips when I worked there at Kennedy. <laughs> When I was I in, in maintenance. <laughs> yeah, I went in there as a captain on the 727, and then I remembered. I didn't, I didn't want the first one, much less again. But uh, <laughs> yeah. somehow I missed hitting the fence. So. Well, you know, what I really enjoyed about operating out of Kennedy when uh, I had a trip there was the fact that um, when it was real busy and you knew you were going to be on the taxiway for minutes, if not an hour or so, when the weather was down and you had to wait and you had to um, kind of like a, a, a gridlock downtown Manhattan, but uh, the airplanes did eventually move. But seeing so many foreign carriers come in that airport and taxiing behind them, uh, seeing those airplanes from all over the world uh, depart. And I had the occasion to one time be behind the Concorde. As they say in Boston, mm-hmm. the Cancord. But uh, mm-hmm. at any yeah. rate, I was behind the Concord, and uh, it was run one. Uh, it, when we got up to departure, of course, the uh, Concord moved out uh, to the uh, departure uh, center line of the runway, and I told all the passengers on the right side what they were about to see, uh, and. Uh, uh, of course, the noise level was uh, just uh, being that close to the Concorde uh, was uh, it, it was really up into the decibels. But uh, it was fun yeah. watching that airplane take off. That was the first time I ever saw one. I think it, uh, it had afterburners, didn't it? Yeah, oh, it did. definitely. Yeah. But it was oh, really afterburners. We we used to call it uh, working the terminal at, at Eastern there as a mechanic. We used to, when I worked day shift on the terminal, uh, we used to have the eight o'clock rocket and the ten o'clock rocket. We called it because we had <laughs> British Airways and Air France that go out and it would shake everything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it shook our airplane when it. Oh departed. yeah. 
Yeah, it Absolutely, really did. Yeah. yeah, it was a lot of fun. But uh, okay, we're going to turn it back over to Kennedy Tower. And Tower, Eastern you got it. Four, Eastern four ten. You're clear to the Atlanta Hotsfield Jackson International Airport. And Captain Albright, you're cleared for takeoff. Roger, Kennedy. Eastern four ten is cleared to Atlanta, and we're on a roll. Atlanta Tower, Eastern 410. This is Atlanta Tower. Uh, you are cleared to land. Roger there, Atlanta. Good old Eastern 10 is cleared to land. We're bringing her in. You may have flown through Atlanta before, but did you know that the site of the Atlanta airport used to be a racetrack? Asa Channel and the business tycoon who established the Coca-Cola company built a racetrack in 1909. However, it was abandoned in 1923. In 1925, Atlanta Mayor Walter A. Sims signed a five-year lease agreement on the abandoned racetrack aiming for the site to be developed as an airfield. As a part of the agreement, the budding airport was named Chandler Field after the land's former owner, the Chandler family. Four years later, the city of Atlanta bought the land, and Chandler Field became known as the Atlanta Municipal Airport. In the 1940s, Delta Air Service, now Delta Airlines, moved their company headquarters from Monroe, Louisiana, to Atlanta. During World War II, Atlanta, quote, was declared an air base by the U.S. government, end quote, resulting in the airports doubling in size. It is likely that land commendations, uh, condemnations, expanding the airport land for military purposes during World War II or in the National Archives at Atlanta's holdings. Atlanta's hold on being the world's business airport is not a recent phenomenon. As early as 1957, Atlanta was already the busiest airport in the United States, and between noon and 2 p.m. each day, it became the busiest airport in the world. 1960s brought the jet age with its continuing expansion of the Atlanta Municipal Airport. The largest single terminal in the country was opened on May 3, 1961, and accommodating 6 million travelers a year. Within the first year, the terminal was stretched past its capacity, prompting the Atlanta Regional Metropolitan Planning Commission to conduct formal planning studies and propose that the midfield terminal concept that opened in 1980. Within the first seven months of 1971, the airport saw itself go through two name changes. In February, former Mayor William B. Hartsfield died, and the airport was named in his honor. 
on July 1st, the name changed to William B. Hartsfield Atlanta International Airport due to Eastern Airlines' introduction of international flights. The 1980s witnessed the opening of the world's largest air passenger terminal complex, the completion of a fourth parallel runway, and the opening of Martyrs at the uh, subway system airport station linking the airport to Atlanta's rapid transit system. The 1990s and 2000s were years of increasing expansion for the airport. In September 1994, International Concourse E opened and became the largest single international facility in the nation, end quote. Construction on a fifth runway was begun in 2001 and completed in May 2006. The runway is held as, quote, the most important runway in Atlanta, end quote. Never heard that before. The airport received its name as is known by today, Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport, in October 2003, with the decision by the Atlanta City Council to honor late Atlanta Mayor Maynard H. Jackson. In 2012, the airport opened the Maynard H. Jackson Jr. International Terminal to manage the millions of international passengers now traveling through Atlanta. I don't know where I'm going when I die. Most Southern air travelers have said at one time or the other, but one thing for sure, I'll change planes in Atlanta, and that's true. While a bit morbid, this quote is undeniably proof of the prominence of the Atlanta airport in the commercial cargo aviation world. It is amazing to consider that what started out as a dirt racetrack would soon, or did, become the busiest airport in the world. You know, Jim, when you just said you didn't know uh, about that, it was the fact it was hailed as the most important runway in America, uh, that runway. That's amazing. Because uh, well, more traffic departed uh, that on that runway was the busiest really? airport in the U.S. That runway, well, and uh, well, I, it's quite I, remarkable. Yeah, I know it. The history, but I'll tell you of one that thing, airport compared to yeah. Kennedy and New York and Chicago, Atlanta got them in and out. And you know, Jim, what what I was impressed about uh, the parallel runways, uh, the uh, east-west, north, uh, east-west, both parallels on both sides, the south parallel and the north parallel, kind of like L.A. Um, it, it was so easy to land on that runway. Uh, let's say you're landing to the west, and I once demonstrated to my co-pilot. <laughs> I don't think anybody else could have cared, uh, but I <laughs> once made a remark to him, watch this, and I was bold enough to state that I'm not going to use the brakes into the gate and he says you're kidding i said no and we were clear to land i taxied off the uh, the runway and taxied onto the apron of the airport without touching my brakes of course i had to make the and i was slowing down of course but uh, made the right turn and of course i had to finally eventually but that airport was designed so it's so you're right jim it's so easy to operate in and out of Atlanta. It was. It was. There's no doubt about it. It handled the traffic, and it handled the traffic very well. Very well. Very well. Now, I, have to I don't agree know whether with that. 
Mike, you might not know about this, but uh, and the rest of you guys might not know about this, but we had a cross uh, runway. I think it was 1533, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. We had another one, too, four and two, two, but they didn't last very long. Yeah, and I remember at the nighttime, we would go out and practice our stalls and steep turns, and we didn't have simulators for the 727 back in those days or the Electras and so forth, and we would actually do our uh, flight training in the airplanes, no flight simulators back then. And we actually took off on, we especially used that 1533. Uh, at night, and uh, it was a fun, fun operation there. I uh, didn't mm-hmm. like the time of day we had to do our training, the back side, back side of the clock. Yeah, yes, but it, it was, was fun. Mm-hmm. But it was fun. Yeah, and we had, had an airport to yourself. Area. Yeah, yeah. Great airport. I, I had nothing. I had no problems going in and out of there at all because we usually would land on the. Uh, uh, coming from the uh, from the from the west, we always land the left side, and uh, that's where the FBOs were. And we taxiing out would be the same thing. So there was never a problem going in and out of there at all. A few times that we did, like I said, I didn't uh, do much uh, too much domestic flying. Everything was international, so yeah. <laughs> that's where the fun began. But anyway, yeah. Hartsfield was very good. Yeah. Well, they ran a good operation. Me. Probably still do. Yeah, let's leave Atlanta now, and I'm going to turn it over to Atlanta Tower. Atlanta Tower, are you with us? Eastern 410, this is Atlanta Tower, and you're cleared to the Miami International Airport, and you are cleared for takeoff. Roger, Atlanta, Eastern 410, cleared to go, and it's Miami, and we're on the road. Eastern 410, this is Miami Tower. You are clear to land. Uh, Roger, Miami. Eastern 410 is clear to land. Accordingly, 116 acres 
of land was bought along Northwest 36th Street in order to construct the airport. The construction was completely completed by 1928. Then it had two solid surface runways, two hangars, and a passenger terminal. The two-story terminal building was, was sturdy and spacious and one of a kind in those days. All the facilities and services for the passengers were kept uh, on the ground floor while the top floor was the numerous offices and huge balcony with a brilliant sight of the aerodrome. Officially, the airport stated its operation on the, started its operation on the 15th of September, 1928. The first flight was piloted by Edward Musek, who flew a Sikorsky-38 to Havana, passing through Key West. During its first of the year action, the Pan American field took care of 8,600 commuters and 20 tons of cargo. It was renamed the Miami International Airport in 1948. After the Second World War, the airport felt the need to expansion as total of all passengers and loads of cargo were increasing each day. As a result of the equation and annexations, the further the future lands of the airstrip had increased in size to 2,878 acres by 1951. Miami, being the famous tourist spot in America, each year more than 33.6 million tourists make avail to this airport. It has been designed without a central terminal structure with eight concourses coming out of it. Each are named as A through H and serve numerous airlines and a huge number of destinations. Every concourse has its own assortment of bars, restaurants, shops, newsstands, etc. For the convenience of the flyers, there are, there are ample numbers of lounges, ATMs, banks, post office, and business services scattered all over the airport. The location of Miami is very convenient. It is situated in close proximity to the city and is barely 8.5 miles away from the central business district of Miami. The airport is very well connected with the city by means of super shuttle, metro bus, or taxi. The metro bus is an economical option, while the cab is considered the most convenient way to connect to the city. These days, it, uh, it is one of the busiest airfields in the U.S. It is stretched out almost 3,230 acres of land and can boast having four runways for jet aircraft. Today, Miami has a huge contribution to the local economy by generating almost 282,043 direct or indirect jobs. Uh, I got a question about Miami. What what uh, concourses did uh, Eastern have there? Anyone we had, remember? Uh, five and six. They were numbered when I worked there. 
Weren't they later? No, they, no, they were A, B, and C, and you had D for international. Yeah, that's right. I remember D for international. Yeah. Yeah, you had to take a trolley out to get on a trans trolley and go out to to the international. They added that a little later. But yeah, they were they were letters, not not numbers in the late before they shut down. Well, when uh, I, was I guess there, in the old days, must have had uh, yeah, we numbers. Had numbers. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, we did. I, any uh, experiences in Miami? <laughs> you guys want to talk about? Well, my for me, Miami was we didn't go in there very often, but uh, it didn't have too much of a problem except uh, coming from international went down in the islands uh coming towards miami in a uh in a, in a nasty day thunderstorms all over the area and you know, everybody was getting talking on the radio getting blocked and stepped on and static and everything else and the controllers were going crazy and they they got us to we were down into the low altitude chart there and uh, on the on the arrival and uh, they had they they had this intersection called haji and they just they, they 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 were just trying to get the instructions out real quick. They told us hold it, Haji, and uh, and uh, tell us established in the hold. Well, we we have pulled all the charts out. We're, they're flying all over the cockpit, and we cannot find Haji intersection anywhere. Finally, we found <laughs> Haji intersection, but there was no published holding pattern there. So we asked them, called them back, and they said hold is published. Well, there was nothing published. <laughs> So I said, well, we'll just hold straight in like we're going in and just do, shoot right in there, you know. And, and so when we finally got that over with, we, I spoke to the controllers and I spoke to the tower and I, I spoke to Jefferson and all of that. And they, they in fact, said, well, there's no, there's no published holding pattern at Haji, so it was not a, a valid uh, clearance. So it, it, what we thought was right, and we just we let it go, but it was kind of one of those confusing mm-hmm. things. But any other time we flew in and out of Miami, it was not too bad at all. Yeah, except well, when, go ahead, Jim. Your story first, mine second. All right, it's no, it's a sad story. After Eastern, I flew for American Transair ATA, and uh, we did do a lot of Florida, but not very much Miami. But I went in there a couple of times with ATA, and it was just sad, sad, just looking at all those American airplanes and all the others. And we used to dominate that airport. Yeah, that's bad. Well, that's, uh, I agree there. <laughs> yeah. Well, they went, my st- I'll tell you, it's... Go ahead and tell us. I was just saying, I'm glad I didn't have to go down there very often. I think I went to Miami three times with ATA. Yeah. Well, my story is this, and I've told it before. I think uh, you guys have heard it, but uh, could have been my last flight. But fate is the hunter, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. And on this particular day, it was bad and good because it was one of my last flights into Miami International. And I had flown a trip down to uh, San Jose, Costa Rica on a Boeing 757. And I had a full passenger load coming out of San Jose back to Miami. The Everglades were on fire. And you guys know, and you've landed uh, at Miami when we had the smoke from the Everglades when they caught fire. 
back in the day. But this was in 1989, and uh, the glades was burning, and the wind was from the west, and it was pushing all the smoke uh, over the city. And we were coming in for a landing, and I'd been turned over from approach to Miami Tire Tower, and uh, we were coming in and landing to the west. I was about over the city of Miami when we couldn't communicate with Miami Tower after being transferred from the uh, approach control. Told the co-pilot to go back to approach to see if we could get a better frequency. And when he turned back over, tuned back over to approach, all we heard was eastern turn right and air Air Canada turn right, and we were about to collide. And I saw a big maple uh, on the tail of Air Canada 727. That's the closest I've ever been to an airplane in the air in downtown Miami. Now, had one second occurred uh, without, you know, hearing that, uh, we may have come together. So uh, the tower, of course, once uh, uh, the the, the uh, airplanes were, I was lined up, I was lining up to land to the west, and the tower told me, he said, Eastern, you're clear to land after all of this. And he said, I want you to call me when you get on the ground. I said, yeah, I want to talk to you also. And my legs were absolutely rubber uh, on the brakes when we landed went in but before we went in i had the first officer check the log maintenance of that airplane and they had had frequency uh, problems on that particular frequency and it had been written up on a few flights earlier and uh, it was just a dead frequency uh, on that airplane and i think it was about a week or two weeks before that trip that we had and uh, so that's when I first just, uh, learned that uh, that uh, frequency that they gave us was not working on our airplane. I don't know why. I never did find out why. But uh, uh, that was uh, a real close call. And it wasn't written up. I didn't write it up, nor did the control tower, and uh, nor did uh, Air Canada. And they must have seen us pretty clearly when we were that close together. But you couldn't see hardly anything in, in the air because of that smoke at that altitude. So that was my last, uh, I think, last experience with Miami International. But it is a lot of smoke. Huh? Neil? Yeah. Was the Hello? smoke black? No, it was a white because... sky. We were coming in during the daytime. Because oh, there was, uh, was an article in the paper one time, they saying that the Everglades would catch on fire due to the planes dumping fuel, and they had some outfit go out there oh. and test the the uh, sawgrass and all that stuff, and they they said that uh, they found about an inch of fuel that would almost float on top of the sawgrass out there because of the planes oh. dumping fuel. Yeah. Well, they put a train field out there to the west. What was the name of that? Uh, T.R.P. 
Collier Field, wasn't it? Collier? Collier, yes. They call it TIP. Okay, training. Well, they had another one they never finished that was out in the Everglades. Yeah. Uh, Because the the people would train out there. They went out there. I went out there. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I did my 10 11 training out there. I got my tightrope yeah, out there in the 727, yeah. Well, that's out there in the dumping grounds. The dumping area. Dumping area. Yes, it was. I used to yeah, go fishing and hunting out. We had, we had a trip from uh, St. Lucia coming up, uh, and we sat down there for about a week, and uh, we were having a problem with pressurization coming back, but we were going into Fort Lauderdale for uh, for a customs and uh, going out of there, uh, the airplane wouldn't pressurize going up to altitude, and so we we returned. And uh, of course, we had a we had fuel for uh, for San Francisco on the airplane, and uh, we had to go out there and and dump over the Everglades. That's the prettiest sight watching the fuel. I've had to dump twice on a 7-2, once in, in Egypt and once <laughs> over Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> if anybody's seen that, that dumping on a 7-2, it's, uh, it's very pretty to watch it. Yeah. Expensive, mm-hmm. but very pretty. Yeah. And it looks like I did it one time and, on the 727. Yeah. Chuck, you had a... Yeah, I, uh, of course... My whole career was almost in Miami, except for a short time in Atlanta. So I started with Pan Am, and then uh, they had gone on strike, and then the Eastern hired everybody just about that would would um, come over. Yeah, and uh, they hired mechanics, pilots, flight attendants, people who worked the gates and everything else. They just basically stole all the people from Pan Am. And uh, I just got my license, so um, I got into the 727s for a while and DC-9s. But the story I'm, I'm, uh, that comes to mind, I, I, I've, I've uh, reiterated this story before, so some of you guys probably know about it. Uh, I think a couple of weeks ago. Was, um, after a while, when you make master mechanic, usually around 10 years service, and most of, a lot of my service was with the L-1011s. Um, I got there just after we bought them, and I think we had like four or five when I actually came to Eastern and stayed in the big rotunda, the, the, the building on the end down there, um, where the 1011s were serviced. And so after a while, the, there was a disagreement on taxi and planes from the terminal over to the maintenance area at night so we could work on them and normally the pilots would do that but then they would have to get some kind of transportation to take them back to the to the um, terminal because that's where their car was parked in the employees parking lot so eventually they ironed it out and they they decided that they would take um, 12 master mechanics out of the each one of the areas, 1011, 727, DC-9, 57, A300s, and train them on all the airplanes and to taxi airplanes. And that way I could be sent from the 1011 hangar all the way down to the DC-9 hangar if they had to taxi a plane over to the terminal. 
So we had to go over in a, one night, and a couple of guys were with me, and they, they certified us because something with the um, Port Authority and the FAA, and we had to go to classes, um, similar to the classes that the pilots do when they get familiarized with a new airport. They give uh, you a taxi sometimes. permit. And Eastern, as you know, Chuck, they they had that little uh, Eastern Airlines taxi permit with all of the all the different aircraft on there with the appro- signatures of approval, which you probably had. I still got it. It's yeah. in one of my drawers. So yeah, anyway, keep, I went over saying. and we were going to pick up a 1011 one night. We got in there and, and we pre-flighted and, and um, went around and kicked the tires and everything and checked everything, make sure nobody left anything on the plane that might have been missing by the air crew. And then we shut the, the front door. Well, we didn't exactly check everything because we didn't go to the to the lavatories in the back because they were telling me I was on the radio in the front, and I yelled out to the, to the guys, "Come on, we got to go. They need this parking space." So we all hopped, we all hopped in there and we cranked it up, and uh, they pushed us back. Well, when they stopped to disconnect the the, the tow bar. We hear this little knock at the door, and I'm thinking, what's that? And I didn't really pay much attention to it for a minute. And then the guy downstairs says, well, all right, we're going to pull the pin, which is this big pin that uh, disconnects the tow bar from the tug, and then you, you disconnect it from your nose wheel, and you, they hook it back up and take it back to the terminal area. Anyway, here's another knock at the door. So you got that little plate that's on the door that you can lift up and look into the cabin area. And I told the guy in the flight engineer seat, I said, why don't you see what that is? I, I don't, he looks out there and he says, I don't see anything, Chuck. I said, well, all right. So before I could even do anything else, I hit it a little bit harder. I said, I told the guy, just open the door, see what it is. And there stands this little lady about four foot six. <laughs> and she, you couldn't see her through the, the door um, window that they had there because she was too far below it. And she asked my the, the guy in the, the uh, flight engineer seat, he says, have we got to Miami yet? <laughs> and he says, um, yes, we're going to get there pretty soon, ma'am. And, it could, and he went and put her in the first-class section, and she sat there. Uh, and I called the tower, and I told him what happened. He says, just sit there, park the, you know, put the parking brake on, and what we're going to do is we're going to have the tow bar hooked back up. We're going to pull you into the jetway. We're going to have the, uh, the jetway people put it up to the front door, and you guys shut the engines down and um, escort the lady out the front door. So I did, and we all sat down, and we climbed out of our seats, and we opened the door, and uh, I said, well, we are in Miami now, and she said, oh, that's terrific. You know, Captain, it was just a wonderful flight, and I really <laughs> love the Eastern Airlines. How cute. And here we were. And you guys were standing in with a bunch of those little guys drinking them, right? <laughs> yeah. So they opened the door, of course, and the the, the agent was there and he took her down and, and, good story but that was story. that was the 
story. That's a tr- that is a true story. I tell yeah, it I'll write it up so I can put it in my book, uh, Chuck. Hey, yeah. listen, yeah. guys. That's our show for today. And uh, uh, from the history that you heard tonight and a little bit about uh, the operating in and out of the airports by the pilots, the three of us tonight, and also by maintenance, Chuck Albright. Uh, it was fun uh, tonight's show, and um, we tried to take off and land, and uh, it was a lot of fun doing this and recalling those three airports. Of course, Eastern had many, many other airports that we operated in and out of, but those were the big three, and, of course, we talk about New York as being three airports in one. But uh, it was good discussion on that, and thanks, guys, for doing that. I appreciate it. Dorothy, let's see what's coming up during the next few weeks. Well, I'm glad that we landed Eastern 410 because, honestly, going up and down like that, my stomach was in a little bit of rumbles. (laughs) 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 Anyway, uh, we want to thank once again our Reef sponsor for uh, giving us such a uh, uh, donation and the members who contributed to keeping our program going and the legacy of Eastern in the public eye. Uh, the Reaper First annual reunions coming up September 4th to 6th, and perhaps maybe, uh, Jim, after I uh, read you the announcements, she'll make a little announcement on the reunion. Uh, the upcoming uh, program is going to be uh, April 29th, Eastern 411, Eastern's Mexico and Cinco de Mayo. Then it's going to be followed by May 6th with repartee, followed by Eastern Air Cargo and History of Air Freight on May 13th. And then at the end of May, we're going to have Sunrise at Eastern. So we have a lot of good programs coming up, folks, and we hope you stay tuned to us every single Monday. And on Thursdays, we have the From the Eastern Files and uh, the OTR, uh, Old Time Radio, with Neil and Don Gagnon as his uh, contributing host. Um, again, back to you, uh, Jim. You can give a little information on the REPA reunion. Uh, well, I don't have the details right in front of me, but I can tell you it's going to be September let me look at my calendar here. September fourth, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, right at the right. Kennesaw uh, Emory Suites in Kennesaw, and we've managed to uh, get good accommodations. There's going to be good food. There's a Ruth Chris in the hotel, and they're going to be doing our food, our banquet, and our buffet, and we're going to be for. A, Couple is three hundred dollars, which is considerably less than it has been before, and mainly because it's a two day, two nights rather than three nights. And I think it's just going to be a fine time, and it's going to be easy to get to. I know that it's going to be a little difficult as usual. Have some people in down in Florida and over in the Carolinas uh, and other places. Uh, I'm sure. I hope we have a lot of Atlanta folks to come. And hopefully it'll be a big success. It's going to be mainly fellowship. We're not going to have guest speakers, dancing, and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be a low profile, have a good time, enjoy each other. 
Right. And, uh, and if you go ahead and sign up right now, you can make your reservations. Uh, the magazine is going to be coming out probably within about oh, two to three weeks. And uh, it'll have all the information in there. Ellen uh, has written up a real nice uh, introduction to it. I guess it's not the right word, but a review of the hotel and what's around there. And it's just going to be a good time. I hope right. everybody comes. You know, drinks are going to be free. And one thing that I really enjoy is that we're not going to be selling raffle tickets. Y'all, y'all probably know that I've been doing that for 10 years. I'm dead gum tired of it. And we're not going to sell raffle tickets. Your welcome packet will have your raffle tickets in there. You don't have to pay for them. They're just going to be there. And and I've been one of the winners for the last four years, but because I, uh, I bought $100 worth of tickets, and it got so ah. bad that a couple of times I had to turn down because it looked bad. The guy said the tickets would win in a month. But now everybody's going to be on an equal basis. You'll have all your tickets. Uh, Jim, it was either yes, Savannah or Charleston convention that we had that I won $500. I know you did. I know you oh. did. <laughs> yeah. That I was think great. it was Savannah. We'll see you I at the bar. Savannah. Yeah. yeah. We're going so, to have the lady yeah. lunch. We have real, you get real dollars when you win, and we're going yeah. to have a lot of uh, – Stuff for an auction, Bob Webb, Captain Bob Webb. I never flew with him, but he's just a great guy at our Reaper luncheons. And uh, he passed away, and his wife brought me a whole bunch of stuff. Matter of fact, I went to his memorial service, and uh, I got up and spoke, as uh, I've done many times before. And she had a trunk full of stuff. Uh, one of them was uh, a box of miniatures. And half of them, I can't believe this, but they were about half gone, but the <laughs> the caps were not broken. And I said, well, how in the world did this happen? So I figured that maybe they don't aren't tightly sealed and some of it evaporated. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with all these things, you know. And they had a lot of bourbon, you know, which I've been known to drink. And I finally decided that they said the hotel will not allow us to bring alcohol into the hotel. We have a, we got to use their alcohol. And using mm-hmm. that is the reason I drank all of those little miniatures. <laughs> you need a nice hip blast. Yeah. I'm not kidding yeah. you. That if somebody gets on to me for doing that, how do you do a sell yeah. those at a at a you know a auction anyhow? So I figured I'd just drink them up anyhow. Actually, I gave quite a few of them away. But uh, well, I didn't want us to get in trouble with the hotel that we bought in alcohol. I got uh, hey, George Neil? Jen on the line. George? Yeah, Neil, I'm sorry. My, oh, you uh, finally woke up, eh? Nah, my, <laughs> my, my daughter-in-law had to go for a, have a gallbladder removed today. And uh, oh, wow. my son asked me if I could come over and watch the kids. So, you know, I, yeah. I just forgot to notify you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, no yeah. problem. Uh, no problem. It's, I know you have a lot of war stories that you wanted to share about I the did. airport yeah. uh, at yep. New York. So uh, we managed to uh, work all of them in, and and I appreciate uh, the fact that uh, uh, that uh, you are with us tonight. And uh, I wanted to make a comment to Jim Holder that I think the opportunity exists now 
that you're holding the reunion in Atlanta, Kennesaw, slash Atlanta, uh, that uh, there are so many pilots and mechanics and flight attendants living in that area that that ought to be one of the large uh, uh, get-togethers of Eastern Airlines. Well, it has the possibility of being one of the largest. And if there's anything mm-hmm. we can do to uh, bring the silver liners and uh, the, the maintenance people and reservations together, God, this would be a great opportunity to get a lot of people. Yeah. And and the Embassy Suites is great. It's a wonderful place. It's, it's a great a, place. Yeah, uh, you get breakfast, breakfast, free breakfast and you, in the morning. Yeah, free yeah, breakfast. Free parking. And free booze. Oh, it's going to be happy hour. a lot less lot less expense. One story I want to get out of uh, George Jen since he got here. I want him to tell us the best story of all three airports that you can remember, George. I know you had it all lined up for tonight's <laughs> show. Oh, so gosh. Hit us with uh, one. Oh, well, probably it doesn't have to do with the airport, okay? It has to do with driving to and from, actually, from to and from Newark, okay? I don't know if um, any of you folks remember Joe Myers. Yep. Okay. Well, remember. Joe was, you know, kind of a, an interesting captain to get along with. <laughs> yeah. and, and apparently there were a bunch of people who didn't care for him too much. So somebody made up these stickers that just said, get Joe Myers. And they stuck <laughs> them on all of the baskets for the tolls going across the uh, Hudson River. And every time I went across there, I mean, who who would say, you know, get Joe Myers? I mean, people driving across there, millions of them probably say, who is Joe Myers? You know? Who is John Galt? Yeah. Yeah. Kilroy was here. Yeah. And every time they, they they removed them, somebody would put a new one up. You know? so, mm. <laughs> he must well, be a New York guy. I don't believe I ever heard of him. Yeah, he was he was typical New York guy. Yep, yep. Well, I remember the Jane Fonda stickers, but they weren't on the toll gates. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I the uh, Lorenzo ones with the red circle yeah. and the yeah. through it. Yep. Well, yeah, I remember somebody. those. Yeah, but I mean, this was well before. You know, this is when Eastern was. Probably at its peak, and I, I very I didn't fly out of uh, Newark too much because it was a long drive for me. But when I did, I, I used to get be laughing for 15 minutes after I went through the toll. I said, <laughs> "People must be saying, who's this guy, Joe Myers?'" You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good story to end our show tonight. Thanks so much, George, for being with us. Yeah. And by the way, I hope Joe, everything Joe is well. Away. Yeah, he passed away a few years ago, yeah. but he was uh, he was all right. He was a, he was still a little different, but he was a good guy, you know. A little different, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're gonna we come in for guys. the final final landing of flight four ten, and then we're gonna turn it over to uh, Chuck to sign us off here. So let's see if we can land the airplane one more time. Don't know where, but we're gonna those wheel first.
get Chuck Albright. Okay. Pick him up. Morning, Captain, as usual. Be sure to tune in again next Monday, April the 29th, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyber waves. And the radio show looks at Eastern Airlines, Mexico, Ciud Milo, and why not help out help us help us out with celebration. With this, we sign off by saying a little champagne music from Lawrence Welk. Mr. Producer, will you please? I got it playing, so go ahead, Chuck. Sign us off. Okay. Good night, Eastern family and friends from around the world. Good night, Eastern Airlines. Good night. Wherever you are, we love you, Eastern. Love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Thanks, guys. Good show, Neil. Great show, guys.